Yeah, again, it really is good to be here with you. One of my favorite things about this job is getting to worship with different churches in our denomination. That's really sweet. Before I pray for illumination, and before I read God's word, I want to recognize that we're coming into a text, I'm guessing you're not in the Gospel of John right now. No, probably not. And even if you were, you're probably not in John 1, 6 through 34. So you don't actually know what comes before this text. So before I pray for us, I want to introduce what's happening in the context. Because it's going to have a huge impact on how we understand the passage today. So in John 6, 1 through 34, there's this fascinating thing that happens. Let's pretend for a second that my hand is the Sea of Galilee. So go ahead and look up here. The place where he does most of his ministry is just north of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Capernaum. And in John 6, 1 through 34, what happens is he and his disciples go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, where you probably pull their boat in. They're on the beach, so to speak. It's a lake. And around 5,000 people, and actually the Gospel of John 6, 1 through 34, it only records 5,000 men having come. So really, it was probably anywhere between five and 20,000 people, counting women and children, they come and they're listening to the teachings of Jesus on this, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And there's this fascinating thing that happens. You know, Jesus and his disciples see that they're hungry. They've all come here from probably a distance that they don't have food. And his disciples say, wow, you know, how are we going to feed these people? It would take more than a year's wages to even feed some of them. And uh, so what happens is Jesus, he sees this child who has this lunch of five barley loaves and two fish. And he says, this is plenty. (laughs) And he takes it and he blesses the food and he breaks it. And miraculously, this child's lunch feeds five to 20,000 people on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And the people are so amazed. They're in such awe and wonder at what has just happened, not only with the teachings of this guy, but with what he just did, giving them a lunch. (laughs) They actually go and they try to make him king. Jesus perceives this and he goes. He leaves. And, you know, there's an irony here because those of you know Jesus Christ, Christ in the Greek is Christos and it means anointed one. Jesus is the king, but this is not how he will be appointed and enthroned. He will not be enthroned by a group of people who are excited they got a lunch. Instead, he will be enthroned in another way. And then Jesus, seeing that they want to make him king, he leaves, and he goes off to be by himself for a little bit. And that is the context that just precedes our text today. And the reason that it's important is because Jesus goes from a crowd of somewhere between five and 20,000 people to only 12. The teachings in the passage that we're going to read shortly are so disturbing, so bizarre and strange that everyone leaves him. Everyone leaves him. And it's in this unsettling gravity that we have to read the word of God. And so, I'm going to pray that the Lord would give us the same sense (laughs) of these teachings as disturbing and bizarre, but also nourishing. So will you join me in prayer now? 
Father, we thank you that you were so good to give us your word, that you have given us a trustworthy, historically represented document that shows us what you and your son and your prophets have said about you for all of the history of the cosmos. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning, that you would illuminate our eyes and our minds, that you would make our ears sensitive to your word, that you would not let us leave here the same way that we came in, that by your good grace and by your word, your promise, that your word would not return void. Work about sanctification in our lives this morning, throughout this week, throughout this next year, But this morning we ask that you would stir our hearts and that you would be active and present here. That this living word would be sharp. Help us to sense the gravity of this passage. Help us to take it and you seriously. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's read together. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how could this man give us his flesh to eat? (laughs) It's a good question. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, whoever gorges themselves on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me He will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of our Lord. So this text that we just read this morning, I think intuitively introduces a problem. It offers a solution, and it shows a way in which that solution is applied. That's going to be the basis of our outline. Those are not the three points, but there's a problem, a solution, and a way in which the solution is applied. For those of you who are note-takers, the three points are this— First, the problem. Humans, we as humans, have an unresolved hunger. (laughs) We have an unresolved hunger. Second, the solution. The bread of life satisfies. The bread of life satisfies. And third, the application of this. It's quite strange. The bread of life unsettles. The bread of life unsettles. We have a hunger. Bread of life satisfies. The bread of life also unsettles. So first, let's start with the fact that we have an unresolved hunger. Let's take a moment to consider the main metaphor of hunger and thirst in this passage. The primary metaphor that Jesus is using in his teaching leverages a presumed absence. To hunger and to thirst is to be without something, to be aching for something that is missing, to desire satisfaction, and actually to not have it. And we have been born with a desire for something greater than can be fulfilled in our everyday leisures, relationships, vocations, vocations, Hobbies. (laughs) So many things have been formed in response to this hunger that we experience as humans. We cannot live on bread alone. And throughout the history of humanity, poets and songwriters, corporations, authors, and philosophers have written about this unresolved hunger. And worldviews, religions, philosophies, and relationships have been formed in response to this hunger that we have. Because ultimately, our hunger is for something that this world doesn't actually have to offer. Blaise Pascal, one Christian philosopher, articulates this hunger well when he says this. He says, 
There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but by only God, the Creator. We were born with eternity in our hearts, and we are hungry for a homeland that we do not know how to seek. We are born into a state of hunger, and this is the condition of our birth. The ache of hunger that we feel, though, I think what Jesus, in using this metaphor, affirms is actually a good thing. This hunger is a good thing. But though there's a near universal agreement on this hunger, this existential hunger that we as humans have, that our lives are marked by, the answers throughout the history of religion to this existential hunger have been very diverse. Buddhism says that you overcome this hunger either by becoming blind to it or by just recognizing that the hunger is a part of what it means to be human. By becoming blind to it, well, I mean, if we were to take this a step further, what does that mean if you applied it to real hunger? (laughs) You can't just become blind to your hunger. Maybe the hunger is actually there for a reason. Another answer, a more secular answer by a philosopher I enjoy who I wouldn't recommend reading is Albert Camus. Uh, He's an existential philosopher. It says, you overcome hunger by making peace with its absurdity. Drop your pursuit of something that's absolutely true and spiritually fulfilling. It's not there. You cannot find it. Muslims attempt to overcome this hunger by their intensive labors of obedience. But if they are honest, and the ones that I've met who are honest live in a constant state of fear of their God, because they actually do not fulfill the law that is set before them. What if this hunger is built in, is good, and is intended to be fulfilled? C.S. Lewis says this on the matter. He's one of my favorite authors, and you'll hear me use him a lot. He says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. (laughs) We have a hunger. Christ recognizes this hunger by his use of the metaphor, and he offers a satisfying, a compelling solution. Let's go to our second point, the bread of life satisfies. We're going to look at verse 35, and then we're going to jump from 41 to 51. I'm going to read this again. So verse 35 says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And down to 41 through 51, it says this, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus' claim here is that he is the bread of life who satisfies the hunger and slakes the thirst of the people that God has called to him. But I also want to point out two ways in which Jesus in this passage, as the bread of life, satisfies. And I'm going to do so by using two terms that C.S. Lewis develops. And those two terms are thick and clear. Jesus satisfies in a clear sense and in a thick sense. And you're probably thinking to yourself, what on earth is this guy talking about? <laughs> what is thick and clear? Well, this is not intuitive. So by a clear sense, what C.S. Lewis means is those things which are philosophical and ethical and universalizing. Those things which are intellectually coherent and stimulating. Worldview. By a thick sense, C.S. Lewis means those things which include blood and sacrifice and ritual and local attachments. Now, C.S. Lewis argues that if there's a true religion, if there is a true religion, it must be both thick and clear. And he says this, he says, the true God must have made both the child and the man, the savage and the citizen, the head and the belly. Christianity takes a savage convert and it tells that person to obey an enlightened universalist ethic. But it also takes an academic and tells them to go fasting to a mystery and drink the blood of the Lord. Christianity must be thick and clear. And so we'll start with that clear sense. The bread of life satisfies in a clear sense. Here, actually, a major portion of Reformed theology comes from this text today. Christianity is coherent and answers the questions that throughout the history of philosophy have been asked. Questions have looked like this. If there's a God, how can we know him? How does God make himself known if there is a God? What is the solution to evil not only in myself, but in society. Is there really any hope for us at all? And we could go on, this whole sermon could have just been answering this question, painting the deep theology of this text, but it suffices to say that Jesus in this passage presents a portion of this cohesive Christian philosophy, which sets this religion apart fundamentally from every other religion in the world. Jesus in our passage affirms, yes, there is a God. No, actually, we can't get to him. Furthermore, in order for God to make himself known, he has to come down. Not only does he have to come down, he has to come down in a way that's understandable. <laughs> he has to come down as bread. Only God can redeem us and only God can come down and make himself consumable. <laughs> 
But the bread of life isn't just clear. It's not just some cohesive philosophy that answers the questions of philosophers or ourselves throughout the history of humanity or in our present day and age. Furthermore, it's historical. It is real. It's physical. It's tactile. (laughs) It's not just a hypothesis. So second, Jesus is the bread of life satisfies in a thick sense. He satisfies in a clear sense, but also in a thick sense. We as physical, embodied creatures need more than a philosophy. (laughs) Regardless of what our cultural context says, we have an actual embodied guilt. Normally, in our cultural context, when we use the word guilt, what we talk about is a feeling. But that is not a historic understanding of the word guilt. Guilt is fundamentally a legal deficit. When you run a stop sign, it is not enough to merely forgive yourself the legal deficit of running the stop sign or to say these guilty feelings that I have about running the stop sign are irrelevant. In order to make yourself right in the eyes of the state again, you have to offer up an embodied payment. (laughs) Guilt is a legal deficit. And the system that God set up in the ancient Near East for his people in dealing with the actual guilt of breaking the moral law was sacrifice. And our entire passage today is actually colored by the reality of the Passover. We read this text this morning for the Passover. For those of you who need a little reminder for the Passover, it was the appointed feast where a lamb would be taken and slaughtered and each household would consume it in haste. It'd be roasted and people would even leave their shoes on to represent the haste involved in this. And, and it was a sign, the blood that would be put on the mantles was a sign of the Lord's grace in sparing his people and in setting them free. John 6, 4 mentions that this is occurring at the time of the Passover. And furthermore, as Nate mentioned earlier, or alluded to, do you guys remember what John said when he saw Jesus in John 1? He said, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of this world. The Lamb of God. In this passage, the imagery of the Passover is being utilized The Lamb of God is coming as a sacrifice to buy his people back, to pay the legal deficit owed, and to redeem them and claim them for himself. But the cost, the cost of the legal deficit is disturbing. The cost is the flesh of a God. Further, to receive the gift of eternal life freely given, we are invited to eat The bread of life. Bread of life is his flesh. So Christianity is not just a clear religion. It cannot merely be presented in some ethereal, ethical, abstracted sense. Christianity is not a Western construct. It is thick. It is thick with blood and sacrifice and ritual. It is built on life and on death, on spirit and the flesh on the stomach, and the mind. We have a God who is transcendent and imminent. And this leads us to the third point, though really, I think we've already gotten there. The bread of life 
unsettles. The bread of life unsettles. In order to take the teachings of Jesus seriously without passing over some texts or moving too quickly, we'll find that many of his teachings, like this one this morning, are actually a bit strange and disturbing. Jesus, in this short text, let's remember, managed to go from five to 20,000 people to only 12. Everyone leaves him, except for his disciples who recognize he has the words of life. So let's turn again to our text to be reminded of this. John 6, 52 through 58 says this. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, and in the Greek, the word used is trogo, which is a term that's not used very frequently, but is also used by another contemporary author to describe the sounds of wild animals masticating, chewing on the carcass of a dead body. He could have just used the word eat, but he doesn't choose that word. He chooses the word trogo. Whoever gorges themselves like a wild animal on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. Body doesn't look like true food. And my blood is true drink. But Jesus, we're not supposed to drink blood. (laughs) Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Union. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The text is disturbing, but to receive what is happening, it helps to sit in the unsettling nature of his teachings. And I was, uh, many of you maybe saw that I came up here with a little book. I was praying, Lord, would you give me a good illustration for what's happening here? Because it's very strange. And uh, a few days later, I was reading with my daughter, Hazel. She's really sweet. She's four years old, and, she, you know, it's bedtime, and we're kind of sleepy. And I'm like, Hazel, hey, you know, do you want to go get some more books, and we can read, and then we can go to bed? And she's like, yeah, that sounds good. So she brings me a stack of books, and in that stack of books, there's this one we got from the library. We didn't proof it. It's called Whale Fall Cafe. I'm like, oh, Hazel, this is great. You love little animals. You're really going to, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. There's this cute little, it's maybe a great white, and he's got a beret, a little red beret on his hat. For those of you who are feeling sleepy, it's a children's book, so it'll be fun. Uh, There's a, a little flounder. He's sitting at a table. He's eating some squid on a plate. And there's a, you know, a little crab. Those of you who can't see, there's a little crab. He's got a mustache. It's like a little French waiter crab. It's all very cute. And I'm like, oh, this, Hazel, this is a great looking book. You love, oh, and there's all these little whales. There's a, there's a bowhead whale and a mink whale and a sperm whale and a humpback whale. Hazel, this is great. 
we're really going to enjoy this. And then we get to the title page, Whalefall Cafe, and uh, there's this whale, clearly a deceased, at the bottom of the ocean in the midnight zone, and there's uh, chunks, some chunks missing out of it. And at first I was like, maybe these are stink lines or uh, worms of some sort, eels. And I was like, uh, Hazel, did you see that picture? She said, yeah. It's like, do you know what that picture was? She's like, yeah. It's like, do you really want to read this book? She's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, let's see. we'll see what it's like. All right. And so the thing I didn't know that we found out as we continued to read is that a whale fall is a technical term. So yeah, those of you who saw the title of the sermon, Whale Fall, no, it's not on Jonah. It wasn't a misprint. Here we are. A whale fall is the event that occurs when a whale dies and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And you're probably thinking, why is there an event named after this? Um, It's just a whale. But the reason that there's an event named after this is because A small whale, a little orca whale, a little orca whale represents around 3,300 pounds of food. That's a ton of food, right? But a blue whale actually represents something more like 330,000 pounds of food. Just an immense amount of food. And so as the whale dies and begins to sink To the bottom of the ocean, these sleeper sharks and barracudas come and they rip the flesh. If you're queasy, it's okay. You can cover your eyes and your ears. It gets worse. Uh, They come and they're ripping chunks out of this whale. And uh, and it, you know, hits the bottom of the ocean. And and these fascinating benthic dwellers come and they all get their part. And, you know, for the benthic dwellers, these creatures at the bottom of the ocean, this whale represents something around 4,000 years of their normal foodstuffs. They're used to eating marine snow, which just kind of falls from the heavens, like manna, which they eat and then die. And then, oh my goodness, there's a massive feast. And it's so massive that creatures from all over the ocean, they come and, not all over the ocean, the ocean's a big place, but within a certain range, they come and they bury themselves in the flesh of this whale. And you get these fascinating little scavengers and hagfish and, and all these proficient predators and all sorts of creatures. And, you know, eventually there's nothing left but these bones. It takes around two, three, four years for a whale to be stripped down to nothing but bones. Even the cartilage is eaten. And you think, wow, that thing just fed so many creatures. And it made an impact for four years, which is a bit disturbing. But actually, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. All of these different sorts of bacteria and osidax worms attach themselves to the bones of the whale. And it becomes a respite for creatures fleeing predators. It becomes an ecosystem that lasts not just for four, five, six, ten, twenty years. It lasts for hundreds of years, sometimes up to a thousand years. Jesus is the greater whale. <laughs> if the body of a whale can create an ecosystem, that lasts for up to a thousand years. What can the body of a God create?
A whale, a large one, weighs in at 330,000 pounds. How do you measure something that's infinite? Timeless. Spirit. The whale fell from one level of the ocean to the next, not of its own will or humble sacrifice, but by the sheer nature of its death. Jesus came down from heaven, infinite, put on finite. Human flesh became a baby to live a life of suffering that led to a cross. How absurd. The whale dies and that's the end of its life. But Jesus, the greater whale, by his conscious sacrifice, then comes back to life and offers us the same life that he has in the Father. Jesus is inviting us into this ecosystem that he is creating, not just as individuals, but as an entire school of fish. (laughs) He's inviting us in, and his kingdom is everlasting. He is the Son of Man. But when we come to Jesus and we see his teaching that he is the bread of life and he calls us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, the thing that I am struck with and reminded by is that we have a spiritual eating disorder. And in order to realize it, we must allow ourselves to be unsettled by the bread of life because brothers, sisters, fathers, and mothers, we have a tendency to look to our marriages, to our parenting styles, to sexual satisfaction, to our positions on education, to control, to power, to political preferences, to alcohol, to beauty, to financial security, to new toys and new trends as a way to fill the void that Jesus is intended to fill. And this is not the bread of life. These are good gifts, but they are not the bread of life. In an eating disorder, a person begins to see good, true food as disturbing and grotesque. But we are invited, on the other hand, (laughs) to look at the body and blood of Jesus as a feast. Many of you have at this point in the sermon probably thought of this feast sitting before us in little cups, little bits of bread and wine. And I want to make it clear John Calvin says that this section that we've read today is not a theology of the Lord's Supper because we are not actually eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ here. But John Calvin also says this, that the truest representation of the teachings in this passage is the Lord's Supper. And so if you are coming here today and you feel tired, if you are lamenting your brokenness, if you are lamenting your own personal sins, if you are lamenting the sins done against you, Jesus invites you into something greater. And by his suffering, he validates yours. And by his death, he offers you life. And we come here together to be unsettled and shaken 
by the word of our God, who is not just a worldview, but is thick with blood, with sacrifice, and with the hope that comes with having our actual transgressions removed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us here, not just as individuals, but as a body. We pray that you would grow us more and more into your image, that you would comfort those who are suffering, that you would challenge us, that you would not allow us to remain the same, that you would shape us into the image that you want us to be. I pray that you would help us to receive you as the bread of life, that you would help us to be unsettled, that you would make us a people who grow in familiarity of you and of your word, and in that familiarity, we pray that you would not let us grow stagnant or stale, but instead filled with life, the life that you have to offer. Do this now and forevermore, we pray in your name. Amen.